We're going to look at uh, verses 23 down through 41 as we uh, kind of continue to make our way through the book of Acts. We we have um, about seven or so weeks left, uh, six or seven left in the series. So uh, we're rapidly um, coming to the end. Acts chapter 9, beginning 19, sorry, beginning in verse 23. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers and related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul's, sent him a message begging him, not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But they, but when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls, and they can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case... We would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, thank you this morning for your word. As we come to it and as we look into it, I pray that um, my words concerning it and our meditations upon it would be acceptable in your sight. And Father, we do ask that you would penetrate our hearts, allow your word to work in us. 
what is pleasing to you. And Father, let us see our own hearts as the idol factories that they are and the many ways in which we chase after things in pursuit of the joy and happiness that only you can give us and only you have promised us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So when you come to this passage in, in Acts, I, I think there's a tendency when you, when you first read it to think it, it feels so far removed. Um, when was the last time you, uh, you know, were inclined to go and grab a, an idol made of wood or stone or glass or, or some metal and, and to, uh, and to give it veneration? I dare say probably in this room, none of you. None of you have done that recently. You, you're not chasing after some object, a physical object created by some craftsman down the road or in China or wherever to give you joy and happiness. Around the world, however, uh, that would be uh, a different experience. When Jody and I traveled to uh, China, um, one of the things that they do is when you first get there, they take you on several of these excursions. They kind of, they want you to see their culture and they want you to experience some different things. And, and, and I'll never forget going to, uh, we were visiting one of the temples. And if you've, if you've been to China, you know this experience. And, and the way it goes is you go to the first building and, and that building is just kind of a, a, a housing for some little object. It's not really, the object that you're there to venerate and then you move to the next one and the next one and the next one and and next next thing you know you're climbing 10,000 stairs and you're arriving at a building and and the the object of veneration is so far removed from you right and there's columns and there's all of these things in between you and the object and and all of that obviously is intended to symbolize that you're really not worthy right the object of veneration is is far removed from you and and there really isn't access right and that's supposed to create this need in you right of who, of who you are of how how magnificent the object is and how weak and puny and small you are and so they build these temples and and they're vast and they're massive and uh, and all of that's intended to create in you this sense of the otherness, right? Look, even in um, our own worship of, of God, there is the otherness of God. He's holy. He's majestic. We, we sing of His majesty. We sing of His awesomeness, right? Our God is an awesome God. He created the universe. But the differences in the story of Christianity is that he also came near. He came here. John 1.14 tells us that Jesus came to earth and he literally tabernacled among us. He made his dwelling among us as one of us. And he lived among us and he died. That is, that is the story. So an other God who came and made himself known. 
But we're tempted in so many ways, not necessarily with, with these idols uh, that are described, and we'll, we'll talk more about that, but we're tempted in other ways to replace that God of the universe with something more akin to our making, our liking. And that's what I want us to look at this morning as we look at what's in your worldview. And we're going to do that by looking at Paul's worldview and then seeing how ours might line up with it. And so we're going to talk about it under uh, under three parts here. First, we're going to talk about idols are real. Second, we're going to talk about idols are confusing. And the third thing is idols are costly. First, idols are real. So let me just try to make the case, all right, that you and I and all of us struggle with idol worship. That's my first, uh, that's my first job here is to, uh, is to persuade you, convince you that you're an idol worshiper. Okay. Are you ready? Let's go down this road. So for Paul, it wasn't hard to see. Paul arrives in Ephesus and literally on every street corner and, and every, there are, um, salesmen selling objects of Artemis, uh, statues of uh, uh, images of Artemis, okay? And um, and so, you know, kind of imagine you've gone to Panama City and, uh, and you know, those little fake shark's teeth, you know, you're the little fake jaws of, of, the, of the shark that, you know, they're plastic and, and, and every single store you go in, they've got them, okay? So you're going into this store and you're going into that store and you're walking into this marketplace and you remember the Agora and you're, and, and, and they're all there and they're selling their wares and, and this, uh, particular place, Ephesus, was known for its temple to Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Okay, you can go online and Google it, and you can see what it what would it would it would blah, 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 what it would have looked like. It's no longer there. It was a very large temple, somewhat the same sort of feel if you've been to China or somewhere. Right, all of the columns, the vastness, with with the statue of Artemis kind of in the very center of it. Hard to reach. But you would have gone there in order to worship um, the god of Artemis. Now, she was uh, proposed to have been the daughter of Zeus, the twin sister of Apollo. Um, she had been worshipped for well over a thousand years by the time Paul arrives on the scene. And, um, and, and typically, she had something to do with either hunting or fertility. Um, by the time Paul arrives on the scene, she's more well-known as the fertility goddess. And so, if your drive at that point in life was to bear children, then the god of Artemis was your god of choice, right? She was the one that you would go to to make you happy. Because she was the one that was going to give you fertility. And if you were fertile and you could bear children and you bore children, then your life was going to be joyful and complete and happy. And so you were in search of that thing. And and in the ancient world, you had a God for everything. If you were, you know, planting crops, you were a farmer, you you had a God that helped enable you to be successful in your endeavor, and so on. 
And so that was the God of Ephesus. And um, there's, a, there's a remark made here as you, as you look down there. Um, some sort of a meteorite that had fallen to the to the earth, and so they had taken that, and that was incorporated in it, into the image of Artemis. It was believed, um, obviously, to have been associated. This this somehow represented Artemis, and that object was there, and so that was the idol of choice in Ephesus. And, and, and there was a man, and his name was Demetrius, and Demetrius was sort of the um, he he was the guy who was uh, the designer, the implementer of all of the production of the idols in Ephesus, and so he is he is the guy that that pulls everybody together as the is the sort of industry leader because what he is recognizing is that what Paul is teaching is going to have a significant impact on what business on trade, on their commerce. And so he has kind of put this, put this all together and he realizes, listen, um, if, if Paul's message, which has already taken hold, continues to take hold, we're gonna, we're gonna have, you know, great difficulty making a living. And, and, and so he pulls everybody together in order to, uh, to try and, and, uh, turn the tide, as it were, and to, um, ensure that Paul isn't successful. But it's this idol worship that they are, right, that that we're thinking about right now. They had their idol. Idols were prevalent in the world. In in the Western world, in our day, in our age, it's not so much the object as it is the idea. And so it's with scientific advancement and, you know, we don't have a rain god. We, We know why it rains. We understand the, well, I say that. Has a weatherman ever gotten it right? Okay. We, we kind of know, you know, two, a warm air and a cold air mass join together and they mean, you know, all of these sorts of things. Scientifically, we understand how something about how the world works, more about how the world works. We understand how, how fertility works. And so we look to science more and more. But even then, it's the idea behind it, right? Um, and so what we're attempting to do is we go to the idea. It, it is the thing. It's the relationship. It's, uh, it's power. It's status. It's, it's other things. It's intangibles that we are looking to in order to bring that joy and that happiness and that delight. So in the ancient world... Your delight and your joy and, and the thing that you thought would bring you the greatest amount of happiness, let's say, was to bear children. So you went to Artemis. Today, you just place the object on, on bearing children, having children, on familial relationships, on job status, on finances, on, on making money, the pursuit of money. Perhaps it, perhaps it's, uh, um, uh, superstar status, something that, many people pursue are just being successful in your career field. But it is the substance of that item that brings you your greatest joy. And so you run after it. You pursue it with everything you have. 
John Stott, who's an, an English-British theologian, uh, puts it this way. He says, thinking about idolatry, he says, In brief, all idolatry tries to minimize the gulf between the Creator and His creatures in order to bring Him under our control. More than that, it actually reverses the respective positions of God and us so that instead of our humbly acknowledging that God has created and rule us, we presume to imagine that we can create and rule God, thereby obtain our joy and happiness. And he says, there is no logic in idolatry. It is, it is a perverse, topsy-turvy expression of our human rebellion against God. And that human rebellion goes all the way back to the garden. Remember, the promise in the garden is what? You will be like God. You will be like God. You will have that wisdom and knowledge and that understanding. And you will live forever. Right? And that will be your greatest joy and your greatest happiness. So for Adam and Eve, the, the, uh, the trick was... If you disobey God and you follow your own desires, you will be like God. You will be joy. You will have joy. You will have happiness and, and your pursuits will be all that you want them to be. Another author puts it this way. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. So what do we do? Well, we, we sometimes even in turn take God and make Him into our own little idol factory. Asking for this and for that as if, as if He were the magic genie in the bottle. God, if you will, if you'll just do this for me, then I'll be happy. Instead of being satisfied, delighting in Him, in all of life. The, the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Okay? Enjoy Him. Enjoy life, all of life. The Apostle Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all for the glory of God. So he doesn't say don't eat, don't drink. He says, listen, whatever you're doing, do it all for the glory of God. See, delight in Him. That's the, that's the challenge that we have. This thing's driving me crazy. All right. Uh, uh, and so until... What, so what we want to see in our lives then is that the con- controlling center of life for us becomes the gospel. Not children, grandchildren, not money, not popularity, not all of these other things. The controlling center of our life becomes the gospel. All of those other things that are good things will find their proper perspective once the center is the gospel. All those other things in in orbit around us find their proper place. Children and family don't hijack our relationships. They are a part of our relationships. They bring us joy and happiness, but they're not the ultimate source of joy and happiness. So um, you know, we, 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 we talk about um, 
this, you know, dependence upon people and not being overly dependent upon them. Have you ever met someone and, and that person had to have you in order to have happiness? Have you, have you ever, have you ever witnessed that? Have you ever experienced a little bit of that yourself? You're miserable unless this relationship happens or is made right. I mean, just go back to being starstruck in love at 16 years old. And, and little Johnny or little Susie didn't give you the attention you were giving them. And what was your life? Miserable. Oh, woe is me. Right? I just magnify that. We do that even as adults. Paul knew that this was real, and that's why everywhere he went, he, he confronted the idols of the day. His message generally is that gods made with human hands are no gods at all. And, and we could just add, gods that are imagined in your heart are no gods at all either. They will not be, nor can they be, the source of your joy and happiness. John Calvin is the one who coined the phrase and said that our heart is an idol factory. He said, in a fallen world, people constantly seek things they can worship, even though the Creator is before us and is in plain view. Paul warned in, in a number of places, as did John, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, to buy, um, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. 1 John 5, 21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. See, if you go back, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and you remember that, that, that part, we, we often reference, I often reference this, scene in which Israel is going into the promised land and they're going to take possession, remember? And and they're going to go in and, and that's when Moses comes and he gives the, the reiteration of the law and he says, listen, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do you remember that? It's the, it's the Shema. And so he's telling them, listen, don't mess this up. Don't, don't forget the Lord. And he says, because when you go into this land, you are going to take possession of houses you didn't build, wells you didn't dig, vineyards you didn't plant. What is he saying? You're going to go in and you're going to have the good life. It's going to be amazing. He says, be careful that your pursuit doesn't go that direction. That you don't suddenly start pursuing the home and the well and the vineyard. Because as soon as you start pursuing that, you're going to forget what? The Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That leads us to our second part. So first. Idols are real. They're real. They're not imagined. This isn't, this isn't me trying to convince you that there are things out there that will distract you. Probably one little glance at your heart and you know, yeah, I've got some issues with idols. I do too. Here's the second part. Idols are confusing. And here's what I mean by that. 
they're powerfully strong in our lives, and at the same time, they're powerfully weak in our lives. And let me explain that. They have great sway. If you look at the text, notice how passionate this guy Demetrius becomes. Right? So, and here's an interesting point. If you look at the passage, I would argue Demetrius, Demetrius's idol is not Artemis. What is his idol? Money. Right? So, in the passage itself, we have the idol, the one you and I typically think of. Okay? You've got Artemis. That's the idol that's driving the, that area nuts. Okay? Everybody's chasing. That's what the industry is. People are traveling there because they want to come and, and worship Artemis. But Demetrius and all of the people that he rabble-rouses and gets, gets all up in, in, in an uproar, their idol isn't Artemis probably. It's money. It's the pursuit of wealth. And Paul threatens to mess that up. And so that's how idols are incredibly powerful. They cause us to lose sight of reality. So Paul comes along and he is making the argument. And what is his argument? The God of all creation is not a God that is made by human hands. That's his argument. Now, if... Demetrius and the other folks had sat down and listened to him and heard the argumentation, which they no doubt did because Paul was preaching it, and he was able to convince some of them. Let's say he did. Chances are some of them came to know the Lord Jesus. Then what would have to happen in their lives? Do they go on manufacturing Artemis statues? No. They lay down their tools And they go do something else. Because the truth has now changed their hearts. You see? So, idols are strangely powerful. They cause us to be illogical about our decisions. This happens all the time. Um, Pursuing jobs, pursuing money, pursuing people. We will make the, the most foolish decisions because we're in pursuit of the thing we think will bring us the greatest amount of joy and happiness. And people do this all the time. In, in the military, one of my, uh, one of my good friends, uh, he was an elder in my church back in Yazoo City, Steve Knott. Steve, uh, was an F-18 pilot. Um, you know, flew that thing off the deck of carriers all over the world. Um, and he was, by accounts, good accounts, He is a very good F-18 fighter pilot. But Steve also knew that he had a family and he had three children. And the life of a fighter pilot, um, of a naval fighter pilot, means a lot of time away at sea. And so he made these decisions, career decisions, in which everybody said, Steve, if you make that decision, you're dead. Your career is over. But Steve was looking at, right, instead of pursuing the career, instead of pursuing the thing that he believed would bring him the greatest amount of joy, he knew it wouldn't. And so he made decisions, right, looking at the Word and his relationship with the Lord and what would, what it, 
the ramifications would be for his family. And so he made those decisions. And he didn't make what, I don't even know what the admiral stuff is, general, admiral. He didn't even make captain, but he made lieutenant commander, which for most military officers is a very successful career. And he ended up flying C-130 Hercules, you know, in the United States. And, and, and he was able to shepherd his family, and he was able to be with his children, and he was able to do the things that he believed God was calling him to do. Instead of pursuing that dream that would have been elusive in giving him a joy and happiness. See, people do things generally not in that kind of manner. And that's the challenge. Listen to, uh, listen to this. I'm not going to tell you who this is. Just listen to the wisdom. Listen to the story. This is a modern pop icon that said, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage, and I think I'm mediocre and I'm uninteresting. Again and again, and my drive in life is from this horrible, horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and probably never will. So there is a modern pop icon saying, listen, I've got all of this fame, I've got all of this fortune, and it's not enough. It doesn't satisfy that inner longing. You know this modern pop icon. The reason I didn't tell you is because you wouldn't have listened to it if I would have told you who said it. Her name's Madonna. She recognized, right, there's this vacuum, there's this hole inside of me that I want filled. It it, it needs some sort of resonance in it. I, I want to be happy. I want to be joyful. And so she is who she is, and she pursues the next wildest thing, the next crazy thing, in order to get the accolades and to get on the shows and to to get the tours, and then finds out what? It's empty. All that money, all that fame, how could she not be happy? That's what everybody would say. Because she doesn't have the one thing that would bring her happiness. Listen, we'll do this with we will do this with really good ideas as well. Things like patriotism. There's a story. Um, Russ, you playing the guitar. I'm sitting behind you. I, I couldn't help but think of Keith Green. Um, how many of you all know who Keith Green is? Yeah, all right. So Keith Green's the early the early Chris Tomlin. Um the 70s Jesus guy, and uh, wrote all those, you know, little, just very singable sorts of hymns. And there's a story about his wife, Melody Green, and uh, she she wrote a pamphlet. Um, she was a songwriter herself, but one of the things that she did was she was very involved in the early pro-life movement. And she wrote a, she wrote a pamphlet and um, a, a tract in which she was trying to encourage people to join the pro-life movement. But she understood, right, that you could join the pro-life movement and mess it up. 
And so she had inserted in there this sentence. Christians working for pro-life must first be pro-Jesus. He must be our focus. He must be care. We must be careful not to allow ourselves to be consumed by a cause rather than being consumed by Jesus. And so what she, she, she was saying was, let, let the pursuit of Christ be the center. Right? Let the pursuit of Jesus be the center. And let the outgrowth of that be, you love life and you're pro-life. Don't let pro- being pro-life become the center. What happens when being pro-life becomes the center? You do things like you go and you shoot abortion doctors at the clinic. And you end up in jail for the rest of your life. Several folks that have gone that route. That's what happens. Love Jesus. Be pro-life. Don't confuse those two. Don't get those two mixed up. Don't get them out of order, is what she was saying. And that's what we tend to do. That's how idols are confusing. At the same time, listen, idols are very powerful, right? They move us in all sorts of directions. They're like a rudder on our ship. But at the same time, the Bible presents idols as incredibly weak. What do they do for you? And multiple stories in the Old Testament, stories here even in the New Testament about the weakness of the idol itself. Will it ultimately produce what you want? No. It's a story in First Kings chapter five. They've they've captured the uh, they've captured the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines have, and so they've brought it in. They put it. They had their giant statue to Dagon is is there, and they wake up the next morning and they come in only to find the statue what face down in front of the Ark. And so they standing back up and they go about their day, and they come in the next day and they find he's face down in front. It's humorous. It was. It, it is the Bible's way of saying, go ahead, chase the idols. They're nothing. What about Elijah on Mount Carmel? With the prophets of Baal, taunting them, where is your God? He's nowhere. So idols are confusing, both incredibly powerful and strangely incredibly weak in our lives to really produce what they promise. Here's the last thing. Idols are costly. And they're costly in several ways. Obviously, to leave them, to run from them, to give them up, they're costly. In the passage, the people are hearing the message of Paul and the message of the gospel is wrecking their idol worship. And because of that, it was costly in their lives. It, it, it cost them in untold ways. And, and the second part is, it's costly for Paul. Listen, it's costly for us to give up our idols. And you can think of the ways in which that could possibly be true. Because there are many idols in culture that we're pursuing, that we're running after. And if we stop pursuing them, we stop running after them, there may be friends 
There may be neighbors, there may be co-workers that look at us and say, really? You've, you've got it all. Why are you, why, why are you stopping the pursuit now? Why are you giving, giving up? And I told you the story of Steve. And he had a commander look at him and said, Steve, if you, if you don't take that assignment, you'll kill your career. And he didn't take that assignment. And by God's grace, it didn't kill his career. But that doesn't always happen. Sometimes it is a career killer. Sometimes it means you get cut out of the circle, right? Sometimes it means people look at you and go, oh, Jesus freak. Another one bites the dust. Sometimes that happens. And so idols can sometimes be costly, and, and pushing them away and running from them can be costly. But here's the last way in which idols are costly. And that is, idols are costly in that the Lord Jesus, God gave His Son for idol worshipers like you and me. That's the chief way in which idols have been costly. You go all the way back to the story of Abraham. That's our story. It's the beginning of our story. And you'll remember, there's Abraham. He's down in Ur of the Chaldeans. And the text tells us he was a polytheist. He worshipped many gods. He worshipped all the gods, probably, that he knew of. And God called him to himself. And many, 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 many years later, Jesus would come and he would live among us and he would die in order that. The sins of our fathers and our sins would be covered. And so that idol worship you struggle with, that idol worship that I struggle with, is covered by the blood of Christ. That's what the Bible tells us. That means you may struggle. You may not win. You may not be successful in that idol battle you have. But he's been successful for you. doesn't mean you give up. doesn't mean you don't keep Running doesn't mean you don't try to put off the old and put on the new, but it does mean this. Your success or failure in running from your idols is not what's going to make you right before God. It's your faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. Not an idol fashioned by the hands of man, but God himself, who became man, that you and I would know life. What's in your worldview? Is that it? Are you chasing after something, someone, somebody? Are you trusting in the person of Christ? Let me pray for us. Father, thanks for your word as we've looked at it today. We've seen how very challenging it is for us. We would run after many things. Father, we do run after many things. And you've given us the only thing. The one thing that would bring joy and happiness to us. 
So, Father, we just confess this morning that we are in many ways chasing after things to bring us joy and happiness, and it's not going to happen. And so let us look to Christ, even as we look to the table this morning. And remember, you've provided all that we need for life, for godliness, and for joy in this life. We 